Virginia Conversations on Virginia Public Radio is underwritten by the Virginia Education Association, the men and women working in Virginia's public schools. VEA, teaching, learning, leading. Online at veanea.org. Today on Virginia Conversations, two stories of families thrust into the glare of the national media spotlight. One over a fight with the medical care a hospital wanted to provide a young cancer patient. The other, a life-changing mistake made at another hospital, sending two families home with the wrong newborn babies. Star child Abraham Sherrix and the UVA switched at birth families. Where are they now? On today's edition of Virginia Conversations. I'm Emily Lee. Thanks for joining us today. Coming up, we'll talk to Paula Johnson, who in 1998 discovered the little girl she had been raising was not her biological daughter. Callie Conley is now 17 years old, and for the first time, she talks about growing up with family bonds as thick as blood. But first, the case of Star Child Cherix. Imagine being handed a death sentence in your teen years. In this case, the sentence was Hodgkin's disease, and the condemned was 15-year-old star child Abraham Cherix of Chincoteague on Virginia's eastern shore. He and his family ended up in the news because he decided he didn't want to continue chemotherapy. The doctors didn't approve, and the case went to court. Today, Abraham is known as Wolf, and at 21, he's a legal adult and still dealing with Hodgkins. Reporter Connie Stevens talked with Wolf and his mother Rose back in 2008 at a time when he'd been out of the courts and out of the headlines. Here's some background, just an excerpt from Connie's 2008 report on the case that was once the center of a national debate over whether the government should intervene in a family's medical decision. It all started in 2005. Star child Abraham Cherix was 15 years old at the time. He lived with his parents and siblings in Chincoteague on the eastern shore and frequently helped with the family canoe, kayak, and tour business. I went up to my room, was sitting on my computer, and normally I always rub my neck like that, you know, and I rubbed my neck on the right side and happened to feel a difference. There was a knot there. Medical tests would reveal Hodgkin's disease, one of the most treatable forms of cancer. A mass was pressing on his windpipe. The treatment? Three rounds of adult-dose chemotherapy. But a few months later, the cancer came back, and with it, a new recommendation from the doctor. High-dose chemo and radiation, which Abraham thought just might kill him. My father said there were times when he had to force me to wake up. He couldn't get me to wake up. There were times when he had to carry me in the house because I was so weak. I mean, it was just ravaging me. So I decided, no, I don't want to take the high-dose chemotherapy or radiation. I'd like to find out if there's something else here. So Abraham and his parents bucked the oncologist's recommendation to arrive pronto for treatment at the Children's Hospital of the King's Daughters in Norfolk. The Cherixes instead pursued an alternative therapy from a Tijuana clinic. It was a tonic called Hoxy, banned in the U.S. It energized me. I've never felt so energetic when I took this. It, it was just incredible. And the tumors that I did have at the time started to become spongy, which means the cancer's leaving the tumor and distributing throughout the body slowly, which means the cancer's going. But Cherix's original oncologist reported the family to the Accomack County Department of Social Services, and his parents were charged with neglect and faced possible jail time. Abraham was banned from traveling to Mexico for monitoring at the clinic. 
things had gone from really bad to much worse, as his mom Rose Cherix explains. We were actually found guilty of medical neglect in juvenile court, and he was ordered to go to Children's Hospital and do whatever they said. We immediately appealed, and the day that we were supposed to be at the Children's Hospital, we were in the circuit court with an appeal. And the judge approved the appeal, and we went the next week, and that's when we won. But they said if I did not go to CHKD and get whatever they wanted to, they threatened to take me away from my parents and put me in a foster home or in a juvenile, how do they call it, juvenile detention. detention. Yes. The family's attorney and social services eventually reached an agreement that Abraham could forego chemotherapy for an accepted alternative, lower doses of radiation and immunotherapy medicines and supplements from a Mississippi radiation oncologist. At last check, Abraham's blood work was looking just fine, his quality of life undiminished. But in getting from there to here for the family, a lot has happened. For one, a state law now bears his name. Abraham's law says that 14 is the appropriate age for a teenager with a life-threatening condition to have a say in medical decisions. It says that anybody who's above 14 and has a rational sense of mind, mature of mind, and they and their parents have decided upon another treatment that is or is not of a medical you know, use, that they can pursue that treatment. So it basically gives the doctors the option to say, okay, you look like you're mature. Your parents have decided this with you. Go ahead and try this new treatment. Normally, doctors wouldn't be able to do that. They would have to say, well, you're doing something that I think is going to harm you, so I'm going to call social services on you. Amidst the court battles and illnesses, the Cherricks family business fell apart. So did Abraham's parents' marriage. But in Floyd, at the rented home they call the healing place, the Cherricks' motto is now one day at a time. That was Connie Stevens reporting from a 2008 interview with then-teenager, now-adult, Wolf Cherix and his mother Rose at their home in Floyd. They join us now in the studio. Welcome to Virginia Conversations. Thank you. Thank you. Wolf, before we talk about your medical and legal ordeal, how are you doing now health-wise? I'm feeling great, really good. You know, uh, there doesn't appear to be anything wrong with me besides the fact that I can't do a lot of strenuous work. And, you know, that's mostly from the treatments in the past. But today I'm feeling great. There was no doubt in my mind when I heard Connie's report when you were still a teenager that you were a mature teenager and probably were back when you were 14 and 15 as well. Rose, did you feel confident in your son's ability to make these decisions early on? I really did because he analyzes everything. So I knew that that he would research it and that his decision was not just something like I'm afraid. If you could explain to our audience what was going on in your mind to make the decision I've been through one round of chemo. I don't want to go through another. Uh, After you do something and it doesn't work for you, why go do something again to see if it works again? At the time that I made the decision to actually try another treatment, um, I was doing some research on alternative therapies anyway. And they seemed like a, a really interesting thing, but it was not something that I knew a lot about. So I got my family together and we all decided to go and do as much research on it as we can. And what we found was that There's a great number of people these days doing alternative treatments who are coming out cured of their diseases. And for some reason, it seemed as though the the medical community and the AMA had been suppressing this information. It made us very curious. And one of the things that we had discovered 
uh, being suppressed by the American government was uh, the uh, Hoxie Clinic in New Mexico. So we opted to go try that after the first round of chemo, which I personally believe almost killed me. What? is involved in the Hoxie treatment? The Hoxie treatment is a tonic. It contains a number of things, uh, cancer-fighting herbs and barks, and uh, it's 75% potassium iodide, which was actually used, or iodide, it was just used to uh, treat victims of Chernobyl, actually. It's a very potent tonic. It's not necessarily the tonic itself that actually does all of the work. It's a combination of diet, lifestyle, and tonic. Are you still on this program? Unfortunately, no. When I came back from Mexico and I went back to Virginia, uh, we were barred from leaving Virginia for any reason whatsoever. I was ordered to an- hand over any passports uh, or identification that could be used to get me across any borders and ordered not to leave Virginia, which was difficult in its own sense because everything, all the supplies that we got were from uh, another town over the Virginia border because we were living on an island. So technically, we were out of commission for about a month. Rose, I don't think anyone can imagine what it would be like to deal not only with such a threatening disease that is threatening your son, but to also be facing issues around court battles. It's stressful enough dealing with your child having such you know such a serious disease. And the one thing that you know your child doesn't need is stress. And then the people who say that they're wanting to help him come in and put more stress on him and us. It became a little overwhelming. You must have felt like you didn't have much control over the situation if you were being banned from doing things that your son felt he needed to do. Yeah, we really didn't because when they told us that we had actually asked the physician to monitor him while we did something else, but I was the one who talked to her on that on the phone, and she disagreed and refused to because she said that she didn't agree with what we were doing, but I never told her what we were doing. She never asked me if we'd seen another physician. She just reported us social services. And uh, they actually did not even tell us about the first court date, so we weren't even there. To face the possibility of everything and to know that they would maybe try to force him to do something is really overwhelming. Wolf calls you the secretary of the family. Walk us through everything that you experienced from a legal perspective. Give us that chronology. We found out about his cancer returning in January of 2006. He was still 15. Uh, He had undergone three months of chemo the previous year, and then you have a two-month period after he got into remission that it returned. Then when the doctor reported us, around March we started dealing with social services, at which time we informed them that at four, that a paper had to be signed by the parents that if we did not want him to have chemo and he wanted it, that he could have it. But when we turned, the tables were turned and he didn't agree as they turned on us. We started dealing with them. We started going to court. He turned 16 in June. And we had already started the process of going into court. And it was around August of 2006 that court was over. And he went to Mississippi to the oncologist there. Bring us to the outcome of this battle. The judge in the juvenile court said that he had to go up here. Uh, He had to go to the children's hospital and undergo any treatment they saw fit. Our law attorneys immediately appealed. We were in the court the day he was supposed to be there. And then we went back to court the next week after the appeal was 
approved, and we told him we had found a physician in Mississippi said, if you don't want chemo, you don't have to have chemo. I'll take care of you. They said, sounds good to us. And we went on from there. And and that's the only way that you were able to skirt that particular issue. Social services had uh, actually found, made their decision before we went into court, and the judge ruled that all of the papers, that wasn't their choice. That wasn't their decision. It was his decision. And he made a court ruling that everything that they had said about us being guilty was to be erased off of their computers and everything else. But you still were forced to go to Mississippi. Well, it's it was the angle that uh, we came off of it, really. It, if we chose any other form of treatment, any kind of alternative form of treatment that was uh, perhaps up for question, uh, we wouldn't have been allowed to, and social services would have pushed the case. And at this point, there was so much stress going around. My best option was to find a legal doctor that they would be happy with who would be willing to let me pursue my own uh, venture in this, and uh, that that happened to be the doctor in Mississippi. And we should point out part of the reason why he came to your rescue is only because he did both. He was a doctor who uses traditional and alternative. Yes, medicine. he uses he uses a very very light combination of both. Technically, he's not allowed to practice very deep alternative medicines. He's using controversial but approved forms of treatment that are that can be considered alternative. Immunotherapy is, is a good example, but as for the heavier alternative treatments, Treatments that are just complete treatments, full treatment cycles of only alternative medicine, he would not legally be allowed to do that without being uh, ruled as uh, a quack. I mentioned two things, Rose. I talked about Wolf's medical issues. Secondly, the court impact. But there's a third piece here, and clearly that was the financial impact on you and your family. Can you talk about that? Because he was going to chemotherapy and everything to begin with, we had our own business, and we had to literally shut that business down a lot of times. You were in kayak rentals, and you helped with the business, Wolf? I did. Okay. It was a family-owned and operated business, and it was all taken away, though. My father had to take me to the treatments. He had to pay out of his own pocket for a lot of my supplements. Uh, we just went, went bankrupt or eventually lost the business. I should stress that this is not something that just happened and went away, either. My entire family still feel, feels the repercussions. I'm in debt. My mom is struggling to get by. My dad is in debt. It's really bad. I ended up having uh, social services help me because of everything that happened. I had invited counselors in to help us all deal with everything. And I had a friend who owned a real estate company who was trying to help me, trying to find a place for us to rent up and down the eastern shore. I didn't have any time. I had the responsibility of a roof over their heads. So I got on the Internet, searched the classifieds, and called many people all across the state of Virginia. And Floyd was the only place that said, oh, this house is perfect for someone with five kids. Because any other time I mentioned I have five children, they would cut me off and say, I'm sorry, it's it's too small for someone with five children. So it was the only place we had to go. We came out during spring break, really liked it, loved the the mountains and the nature here. And... We packed up and we moved. You're listening to Virginia Conversations on Virginia Public Radio. I'm your host, May Lily Lee, and my guests today are Wolf and Rose Cherix, and we're discussing a minor's right to pursue medical treatment. Joining us later will be Dr. Margaret Mormon, a bioethicist from University of Virginia Health System. It's cited that the traditional forms of cancer treatment uh, are shown to be very successful in abating Hodgkin's disease. So I think one would ask, what made you decide to buck that particular 
traditional concept of approaching Hodgkin's. I, I absolutely won't deny that the, tr- the chemotherapy and radiation treatment is a wonderful way to treat the Hodgkin's disease specifically because it works very quickly. And at the same time, I'm going to turn around on my own statement and say that it's also the most horrible and horrendous way of treating any disease. I experienced a physical experience of of literally ripping my body apart, really. Uh, On a cellular level, it was killing my body from the inside out. I could feel it. Everything that I did in the day was stunted by this chemotherapy that I had to go every week and take. There were some times when I'd have heart problems where my heart would actually stop for three or four seconds, and I thought that I was having a heart attack. I decided, well, you know, there, there's got to be another way to do this. And that's when I started getting onto the alternative therapies. When I went back to the doctors, they suggested high-dose chemotherapy. Take note that I was taking the adult dose. I was not taking high-dose. High-dose chemotherapy and radiation, both things combined out of the question for me. Even if I was not doing alternative medicine, I don't think I would have survived that form of aggressive treatment. We had a physician, an oncologist, who testified that he only had a 25% chance of surviving the high-dose chemo because once you have a like a 85 to 90% chance the first time, if your Hodgkin's returns within a short period, which is very short, two months, then the chemo that you're going to have, your chance of surviving that chemo treatment is only about 25% or less. I know that you also came across some of the long-term effects of chemotherapy. Oh, absolutely. I still, I'm still i still experiencing long-term effects from chemotherapy. What are they? Some of the things I, I have are shakiness. I hold my hand out. I, I can't not shake it. just does it on its own. Tingliness and numbness in the fingers, poor circulation. Cognitive functions are a little down. I've noticed a decrease in my cognitive functions. Uh, sometimes I, I, I have a short-term memory on uh, certain words or phrases or activities. These things are all after effects of chemotherapy. And unless you get treatment, reparative treatment on this using alternative therapies, it is something that gets a little worse in your later life and will progressively uh, annoy you, really. But we should probably say that this is another link that's made, uh, whether supported or not, that chemo can lead to secondary cancer yes, later absolutely. on. absolutely. What has this done to either of you in terms of your trust of the medical establishment? I'm not claiming that all doctors are bad or that all social service uh, workers are bad. I'm claiming that uh, people need to be aware that there is a corruption within both systems and they need to be cautious when approaching them. And to maybe even note that uh, the medicines which they're given in my strong opinion, are not necessarily the way to solve their their bodily problems. And is, Rose, corruption a word that you would use too? That's pretty strong. No, I wouldn't use corruption. And like he said, there's good and there's bad. There's good and there's bad in every organization. That includes the medical organization. And I can hear what both of you are saying, Rose. There are well-meaning, well-intentioned, and good people serving in there the are. medical Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll be talking to Dr. Margaret Mormon, who will join us. She's the Director of Programs in Biomedical Ethics for the University of Virginia Health System. We'll be right back. Virginia Conversations on Virginia Public Radio is underwritten by the Virginia Education Association, supporting public discourse through sponsorship of Virginia Public Radio. Resources for parents and teachers online at veanea.org. More information about Virginia Conversations and other Virginia Public Radio programming can be found online at virginiapublicradio.org. This is Virginia Public Radio. 
if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Virginia Conversations, a production of Virginia Public Radio. I'm your host, May Lily Lee, and we've been talking about medical treatment and the rights of a minor to have a say in their course of care. We're joined by Rose Cherix and her son, Wolf. Their family's story is the backbone of what's now known as Abraham's Law in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Also joining us now from the Charlottesville studios of WVTF Radio IQ is Dr. Margaret Mormon. She's a medical ethicist specializing in the interdisciplinary scholarship that intersects ethics, religion, and medicine. She's the director of programs in biomedical ethics for the University of Virginia Health System. Welcome, Dr. Mormon. Thank you. It's good to be here. This is an interesting conversation that an entire law evolved from Wolf's case, Abraham's Law. Of course, he was known as Abraham back then, Star Child Abraham. What is your opinion of this law, which now states that if you're over 14 years old, you should be given the option of determining your medical care? Well, I'm I'm sort of of two minds about it. Um, I remember what, um, well, I wasn't there when he did it, but what Justice Holmes said, which is that hard cases make bad law. One of the difficulties with the law is that it removes the ability to make nuanced decisions. That's that's my concern about it. I certainly understand the reasons um, that the law was passed, and I think there's some good that can come out of it. But I'm a little concerned that it doesn't allow for the ability to think about whether this particular 14-year-old or this particular 15-year-old actually is um, capable or of making the decision. I, that, that's one concern I have. But then, you know, we know that there are 30-year-olds who are not really capable of making a decision. That's why we have a a bright line at 18 for that. And the question has always been where that line should be. It's interesting that we could change it to 14 for this, but we're not changing it to 14 for other things. Bioethicist Arthur Kaplan is quoted in the Virginian pilot as saying that he's not crazy about the law, pretty much piggybacking what your concerns are. Uh, one family's situation could be entirely different from another family situation, the common denominator of age 14 uh, not having that much of an impact and whether it will be a good decision. I, I think that's right. I, I don't like taking away from our society the ability to make case-by-case decisions about something like this. It's the problem with bright-line laws is it does tend to take away our ability to think in more nuanced fashion. Uh, this is Abraham. I was actually wanting to Hi. reply to that. I think that there's a, a keynote in the law that actually makes it uh, pretty much the exact opposite of what you're saying, and that is that the law does not say that 14-year-olds have the right. It gives doctors the ability to make educated decisions on these children, it gives the doctors uh, the ability to say if the if the doctor's judgment on this person is good, if they think that this person is uh, mentally stable, if they think they're mature, and if they think that their decision is in their best interest, the doctors can give the family permission. The doctors still retain all of their previous rights to deny the family uh, that leisure by, of course, contacting social services or not even giving them the initial uh, the statement that they can do what they want to do. The law simply opens up the possibilities. It does not actually claim that the children have the right to make these decisions on their own. 
Well, thanks for the clarification. That's very helpful. But then I'd have to ask, what's the point of the law since doctors could always do that? Doctors were, could not always do that. Doctors are required by law, if, if they believe that the child is going to be harmed, to contact social services. And by medical standards, anything having to do with alternative medicine is considered harm. Therefore, doctors would be required to contact social services for every alternative medicine case that was reported to them because that's medical neglect. Actually, I don't think that's been the case. Um, I have to confess I'm also a pediatrician, which is that unless there's a situation of real disagreement, say, between the child and parents, as there was obviously not in your case, then the physician actually does have the right to do that if the, if the parents are saying that. You know, that, yeah, that obligation really didn't exist. I don't, well, anyway, I mean, we could go on forever <laughs> about interpretations of the way things were, but I've certainly, in my own experience, not had the need for a, such a law. I believe But that I'm glad to hear your clarification that it's not uh, enforcing that. If so, then it's really, you know, as far as I'm concerned, no different from the case without the law, and therefore I would withdraw my objections to it. Yeah, your your uh, information was also very helpful. I didn't know a couple of things you had stated. Yeah. And I think what it also does is it gives physicians an out because they do not have the risk of being sued if someone tries something else. I want to offer this up that ever since the law was put into place that Children's Hospital of the King's Daughters in Norfolk hasn't seen one case in which a family has evoked that law. So it hasn't been used yet there. I have not seen the law used in many places. I've seen, I've heard a lot of appraisal for it. I've heard a lot of denial for it. I've not actually seen it put to use. The amount of cases that actually make it to the news, they're very far and few between. So, you know, the chances that even if one of those cases which did make it to the news used this law is very slim. So there's, you can't really say how much it's being used. I know that it has gone through several chairs to be uh, revoked, though. And it has actually not been revoked yet. Dr. Mormon, what's your take? Just give us a thumbnail sketch of what's going on here and, and maybe what went right and what didn't go so right. A couple of things to sort of lead off with. And first, let me say, um, Wolf and Ms. Cherix, I, I really admire your courage through all this. Thank you. Um, and I also rejoice with you, Wolf, in your, your continued good health. The other thing I want to say is that it's, uh, it would be irresponsible of me to draw any major conclusions about what went on five or six years ago since I wasn't there and don't have the medical records. So this is going to be much more of a sort of general approach. And, and my general approach is this, that it was right that this decision went to the courts. This isn't a medical decision. This is a social decision. Since we do have those bright lines of consent, medicine is, is correct in saying that, that medicine can't decide whether it's okay for you to make that decision. This is prior to your law, of course. Um, so that that move actually was a correct move. Having said that, based on what you've said and what I have read in the past about this case, it's not clear to me that the, the carrying out of that process was done the best way it could have been. Um, and I'd like to think that the the publicity that it got and then perhaps also the law have that one of the reasons perhaps the law hasn't been evoked is that it has changed the way in which we as medical people deal with situations like this so that they don't sort of rise to that point of conflict. I think what was really unfortunate is that it came out to be such an adversarial debate as opposed to everyone being focused on the same thing, which was your, Wolf's, your well-being. 
Uh, I want to go ahead and agree with that, actually. It was indeed not the medical community's fault, as it normally is not. There are grassroots uh, that the medical community has to follow, and those, of course, are branched out throughout the government. So uh, anything that happened after the case was reported, which it you know, rightfully was, it's not the doctor's fault, was carried out improperly, in my opinion, by social services and other such branches. Doctor, what do you think about Wolf's assertion that the medical industry is corrupt? Well, <laughs> I'm not going to agree with it. I think, is there corruption? Yes, of course there is. I don't think that you can paint wholesale medicine's convictions about the best way to treat illnesses as being a matter of corruption. It's more a matter of very fixed beliefs and well-grounded beliefs in the validity of scientific studies and in the particular theories that have arisen from those studies. And as human beings, we all uh, follow the the strength of the convictions of our beliefs, and, and I think medicine's no different in that, and alternative medicine does too, obviously. Um, and I don't think that's a form of corruption. Does corruption leak in? Absolutely. And do we always have to be sort of ever vigilant for it? Yes. Um, I, I do think it would be a mistake to paint this entire question as one of corruption, though. Well, if you and your mom have been invited by Virginia Tech to speak to the bioethics classes there, medical ethics. what's the big takeaway? Well, we went to the the, uh, the medical ethics class. Uh, it was highly receptive. You had a lot of first-year medical students uh, that were sitting up there. Very wonderful questions coming through, articulate and amazing people. The question arose, you know, what can we as medical doctors do to uh, avoid situations like this or, or to improve th- the relationship with the patient to make cases like this happen less? And my advice is, it's actually a very simple concept. Uh, It's just to listen, to listen to your patient, take into consideration everything that they say, and then treat them as if they're a part of your family. I mean, who wants to go to a doctor and and feel alienated? You are, after all, offering your body up to this doctor. You have to trust their expertise and their words. So the best thing that a doctor can do as a doctor is to listen and be aware of the concerns of the patient. Dr. Mormon? I, I think that's wonderful advice, Wolf. I'd love to have you come talk to our, our ethics, our <laughs> students, medical students in their, their ethics classes. Um, I, and I think that advice about listening is really important. I think one of the things that happens to, to people in medicine, bec- probably because of the sheer um, weight of, of what uh, physicians have to deal with, is that we get focused on only a certain sort of outcome mm. and are not as open, I think, as we might be to hearing all of the goals that are at stake here, that it's not only a matter of whether one can eradicate the cancer, it's also a matter of how you are going to continue living with this process, how you understand your body, what things are important to you, and whether we can reach a balance between what medical evidence is saying would be the correct treatment and what you know you need in order to be able to carry on the life you want to live. I think good physicians are usually able to strike that sort of balance, but you're absolutely right. It takes it takes paying attention, and, and listening is, is the core of that, is really hearing what you're saying and asking the right questions. I know for a fact that these aggressive treatments will work sometimes. 
what I believe is that each person will react differently and as an individual to these treatments, and that's what needs to be taken into consideration. Instead of treating people as a batch, people need to test their options and find what works best for them. So if chemotherapy doesn't work for you, then perhaps you need to try something alternative. If alternative treatments don't work for you, you may want to try chemotherapy. I can't express what a pleasure it has been to have all of you with us. You've been listening to Virginia Conversations with our guests, Wolf Cherix and Rose Cherix, and also Joining us from Charlottesville is Dr. Margaret Mormon of UVA Health System. She is the Director of Programs in Biomedical Ethics for the University Health System. It's great to have all of you with us. Since we recorded that interview with Star Child Cherix, his cancer has returned and he continues his battle against the disease. On Virginia Conversations, the story of families thrust into the glare of the national media spotlight after the discovery of a life-changing mistake made at a hospital, sending two families home with the wrong newborn babies. The UVA switched at birth families. Where are they now? It was back in 1998 when Paula Johnson discovered the little girl she had been raising was not her biological daughter. Callie Conley is now 17 years old, and for the first time, she talks about growing up with family bonds as thick as blood. Paula, Callie, thanks for joining us to share your story. Hi. (laughs) You know, I want to start off really with getting our audience straight on what happened. So if you don't mind, I'm going to set the stage a little bit here. Paula, you were having a custody battle with your partner, Carlton Conley, over three-year-old Callie. And one of the requirements of that was a test to determine if he was the biological father. Turns out, not only was he not the biological father, you weren't the biological mother. Right. Tell us about that day. It was July 3rd. Um, I had come home from work. There was a message on my answering machine from the local courthouse um, asking me to come up there and talk to them. I called because it was late in the afternoon, um, got a hold of the clerk there at the office, and she was basically saying, I need to come in there. You need to come and talk to us. I repeated, you know, I just got off work. I'm muddy. I'm wet. I don't want to come up there. Just tell me what it is. Uh, finally, she put the um, the judge at the time on the phone, and uh, he tried to convince me to come up there. I said, I'm not coming up there. Just tell me what's going on. And he said that um, Carlton was found not to be Callie's dad. And I said, well, something's wrong. You know, they did another blood test. And he said, well, there's more. And I said, well, what, what, else, could, what else could you tell me at this point? He said, uh, you were not found to be her mother either. And I said, well, now I know there's something messed up with your blood test. You know, they did one before. He said, yes, ma'am, we knew the first time that we did it. We just needed, we redid the test to be able to confirm that she was indeed not your child. Um, I asked him at that point, well, what do I do? He said, um, I have to call the sheriff's office because legally you're in possession of a child that doesn't belong to you. And uh, I said, what does that mean? Are they going to take my child? And he said he had no idea. And um, this is where you attempted to hide Callie. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I did a pretty good job for a while. (laughs) Well, anytime there's a sheriff involved and there's a mom protecting her daughter. (laughs) Right. And uh, then he advised me that um, the best thing that I could do would be to go and get a really good attorney, which is what I did. Kelly, do you remember any of this? I remember absolutely nothing. Okay. There are certain things you discovered along the way, and we will, by the way, get to some more details around this. Mm -hmm. But you had such a reaction to this that, you know, we all wonder what would happen if we were faced with this absolutely 
incredibly rare occurrence. Right. It's not often that this happens. I right. think you've, I've heard you say that a couple of times. Yes. <laughs> but to have all of the other things piled on top of you immediately, it's one thing to deal with the realization that she's not your birth daughter. Mm-hmm. But it's a, that somebody's going to come and take her from me. That was my biggest fear. I didn't know the ins and outs of the law and all that other stuff at the time. The only thing I could think of was somebody's going to take my child and I'm not going to have her. I didn't think about where the other child was because I wasn't sure if it was really true at that point. You know, I wanted to make sure that everything was right. But my biggest fear was that somebody was just going to come and take her from me and that they were just going to hold her until they sorted it all out. And I didn't want that. Now taking our listeners to the other side of the story. Meanwhile, Kevin Chittum and Whitney Rogers, who had their child at the same time, three years earlier at UVA Medical Center, thought that their little girl, Rebecca, was their own biological daughter. Mm Mm-hmm. Turns out, Callie, that they were yours. Yes. When you think back on this story, and uh, this was exploded in the media when you were too young to understand everything that was going on, what what is your reaction? At first, I didn't really have a reaction, but then my mom, she always and let's be really clear, your mom is. I consider my mom to be Paula Johnson. She just always was told me to be aware about it. I was always on the internet researching it, so now looking back on it. It doesn't really feel like anything really happened. Do you feel that she shielded you from this, or were you just... No, I I never shielded her from anything. I always put it out there. She used to be on the television, and she'd say, you know, why are you on TV? And I said, because everybody thinks you're beautiful. You know, I explained it to her in a way that I thought that a three-year-old could understand it at the time. And as she grew older, it wasn't like a big shock to her. How old was she when you said, look, here's what happened? She's always known, but only to the to a degree that a three year old would understand. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was y- your mom and Paul. You know, your mom went to the hospital, and this other lady went to the hospital, which is your mom, Whitney. We went to the hospital. You know, and we had a baby, and then you know something happened, and then you ended up coming home with me. And as time progressed on, you know, you can just add a little bit more to the story, wherever they, whatever they can understand at their age level. And folks, so she, Paula wasn't selling her a bill of goods. She's a beautiful girl. You're a beautiful <laughs> 17-year-old. Thank you. <laughs> you know, the singer-songwriter Mary Gaucher writes of the isolation of learning and knowing that one is adopted. And she actually talks about that in a musical album. Imagine that's quite a process. What about you? Did you have that adoption awareness process that you had to go through? I think some of it was... Not necessarily the adoption piece, but it's sort of where do I come from? Where do I fit in? Yeah. I didn't really consider myself adopted. Up until maybe five years ago, that's when I started questioning, who am I? Where did I come from? I don't know anything. I don't even know my background. Mm -hmm. That's where we should probably go ahead and explain to the audience the amazing confluence of events here. Uh, It was a tragedy. One day, Paula, after you learned that Callie wasn't your biological daughter. Kevin Chittum and Whitney Rogers were in a horrific car accident that killed not only the two of them, but all of the passengers in their vehicle. Yes. And that was a July 4th weekend holiday. That must have been a really, really difficult thing for you to learn about just as you're getting ready to embark on finding out, well, who are my parents? At the time, I didn't really comprehend it because, well, we didn't really know that Rebecca was the other baby so at first we thought Rebecca was in the car and then to find out that my parents actually died it didn't really hit me for a couple of years later because then I figured out that well Rebecca's going to get to know her mom I'm not going to get to know mine 
I'm not going to get to know that she liked cheerleading, that my dad was a quarterback. Um, I see pictures, but I don't really know who they were. There are some things that define your connection, things that, for instance, your late mother, your late biological mother mm-hmm. loved, foods like you love. Yeah. Like pizza. Yeah, like pizza and... Anything with ketchup yeah. on it. <laughs> <laughs> And there was also a a real connection for you as well with your foods and the foods that Rebecca loves, Paula. When I was pregnant with Rebecca, I used to go to Wendy's and I would have Frosties and I would dip my french fries in it. And one of the times um, in the beginning when Rebecca was with us, we took Rebecca to uh, Wendy's and she did the very same thing. And I just sat there and cried. I couldn't do anything else. My mom was crying. <laughs> my my girlfriend at the, you know, my friend Bonnie, she was crying because they were all watching her, you know, do the same thing. You know, I love crab legs. Rebecca just loves crab legs. Rebecca and I have a lot of, a lot of similarities, a lot. I want to go back, Kelly, to your looking for that connection that isn't there because they've passed away. Do you get that through the grandparents? Do you get that through conversations with Lindsay, uh, Rebecca's sister? At the time, right now, I don't really have a connection with them. So no one except for... I don't really have a connection with any of them. Can we ask why that is? I think it's just differences. Before the differences surfaced, was there an opportunity for you to say, look, tell me about my dad. Tell me about his amazing carpentry skills. Tell me about... It's never really a time for either one of my parents. I feel like neither of, neither of my grandparents on my mom's or my dad's side really wanted to not necessarily accept it, but go into it. Because I feel like it's still hurt. for them. So going back to your saying that you don't really feel adopted, in a way this sort of must make you feel somewhat adopted being locked out of that information. Not really, because Paula's always been my mom since I was taken from the hospital. She's always been my support, my backbone. She's always been there. I don't consider her anything else but my biological mom. What a tribute to you, Paula. Paula, we should point out that you adore children. How many do you have? I have six children. One of whom is a foster child? Yes. Yes, she's 32, um, and then I've just taken in my nephew, who's 17. Describe your family. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> I don't know if there's a really there's an accurate depiction of my family. <laughs> They're just a mixed match of everything. I have, you know, my foster child, then I have four biological children, and then I have Callie. I have seven grandchildren. Um, who is their his and hers and theirs and ours and probably the neighbors I don't know, but they're all my grandchildren. I've been around them since they were born. I've taken care of them. I don't consider them as anything else but my children. Blood doesn't mean anything to us. Nothing. Yeah, that's great, Callie. Well, how, do you, how do you get along with your siblings? Like any other siblings, <laughs> <laughs> we fight, we argue, but at the end of the day, we all love each other. It's great to hear. You know, I want to go back, Paula, if we could, to some of the discoveries back then when you were putting the pieces together, that mm-hmm. this isn't my child. There's a humorous story that you tell about having been in the hospital and saying, well, this doesn't look like my child. She's dropped a pound. She's dropped a few pounds. She doesn't look like the big fat baby that I, I mean, the nine pound some ounce baby that I, you know, that I had. So to get it really clear in the minds of our listeners, you got to hold one child at least 
And then later you were presented with another child. Yes, absolutely. When I had Rebecca, when I had my child, let's just put it that way because it's hard when we start confusing the names. When I had my child, um, because she was so big, they thought that she had juvenile diabetes. So they took her. Plus, I'd been in labor for two days. I hadn't eaten. But they, they took her. And Carlton went with her to, to the nursery. Um, and then I went back to my room. I didn't have her that night at all because it was in the wee hours of the morning. So I didn't have her at all. When I got up the next morning at 7.30, I was having my tubes tied. So they took me directly into surgery. So I didn't get to see her all morning either. So when I got out of surgery, I was on Percocet and whatever. So I waited for Carlton and his family to come up there that night. They got to see her for a little bit. I held her for a few minutes, and then Carlton was leaving because I was on the Percocet. They would not allow her to stay in the room with me. So they took her back. We took her back to the nursery. So when we took her back to the nursery at some time in the wee hours of the morning from what we can see in the medical records is when she was switched. So it was just a very few minutes that I actually got to hold her. You're listening to Virginia Conversations. We're talking with Paula Johnson and her 17-year-old daughter, Callie, who is actually making a first-time media appearance, and we're delighted to be able to see this beautiful young woman. And, you know, I want to get back to the issue of your experience with UVA. Tell me about the lawsuit. There's not really a lawsuit. I mean, we filed the lawsuit because nobody should have to have that done to them. It was never about money. It was never about anything because you can't bring Kevin and Whitney back. You can't change the fact that you've switched our children and they haven't known their rightful parents for the last three years. You can't change any of that. And no amount of money in this world would ever fix any of the pain that any of us have ever been through. So when the lawsuit was filed, you know, it was it was settled in the end, but they've never, ever once accepted responsibility for anything that they did in this situation. Absolutely none. And that money, you know, the money is more, it was set up for the children. Yeah, I got a little bit. The the Chittums got a little bit. But the girls are what was most important because they're the ones who are going to have to reap for this for the rest of their entire lives, you know. Now, we've established that Callie, because of differences, uh, isn't able to have, isn't having official contact with the other family, mm-hmm. the family that belongs to Rebecca at this point. Correct. What about you? Do you have any connection with Rebecca? No. Okay. No. Why is that? Um, I think it's just differences. Like Callie said, it's a totally different world that we live in. We live more in the city, you know, because we're just 25 miles south of D.C., whereas they're, you know, in a very rural, desolate area in in Buena Vista, um, very little itty-bitty town. It's a very close, tight-knit community. Everybody does everything together. Everybody knows everything, whereas our lifestyle is very fast-paced, hustle-bustle, 95. It's just a lot going on. On, and I think it's a culture shock. Callie has a really hard time when she has to go down there. It's like, okay, can we go somewhere? Can we do something? <laughs> you know, whereas Rebecca's like, oh my goodness, you know what I mean? This is just ridiculous. It's just so fast paced and so just out of the normal to have two totally different worlds to have to come together. It makes it a little bit difficult. You know, it's interesting when you watch made-for-TV movies about switch to birth. And don't tell me you don't. (laughs) There's oftentimes that predominant theme of one was switched and is in the upper echelon of society and the (laughs) other one is at the other rung of society. Right. That huge chasm, right? Right. Well, I'm thinking of this as you describe the differences geographically. Right. But they're not that huge in terms of real-life means and resources. No, no, not at all. Now, a couple of years ago, you changed your name, Callie. Yes. Give us the full name. Two years ago, I changed my name from Callie Marie Jill Conley 
two. No. What was it? You don't even know your own name anymore. My first, my first Rebecca. one. Rebecca. I changed it from Rebecca Grace Chittum to Callie Marie Joel Chittum Johnson Gentry. I think that that little lack of communication there was just that she didn't remember far back enough. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, she's never been called Rebecca, but that was her legal name was Rebecca Grace Chittum. Now you're Callie Marie Jewel Chittum Johnson Gentry. Yes. Great. And tell us about the genesis of that. How'd that come about? Callie's the name I was always called. Marie is Carlton's grandmother's name. Carlton's mom's middle name. Middle name. And Carlton is? Carlton's Paula's ex boyfriend, Rebecca's biological boyfriend. Okay. Jewel came from my mom, Paula's mom. Chittum came from my biological dad's side. And Johnson Gentry. Johnson came from my mom, Paula, and Gentry... Is, is my ex-husband's last yes. name. And more important, why the name change? This must have been a really important turning point for you. Yes, it was. Um, I think I initially changed it just so I could figure out my own identity. And by taking on everybody else's names, I feel like I kind of hid my own identity. But at the same time... I figured out who I was. Did she go through any, I'm, I'm looking at Paula as I ask this question, did she go through any rebellion toward you? It was never really toward me. It was just in general toward anyone. She was very angry for a long time. Well, I wouldn't say a long time. For about a year and a half, we had a really tough, tough time with her. Not like behavioral-wise. It was just that she was just so angry and not knowing who and where she came from. What know? period of time? Probably about two years ago. About two years ago. Oh, so it was tied into this. <laughs> it was all, it was, yeah, all of that was tied in. It was trying to, for Callie to try and figure out who she was. You, you're obviously not going to find out exactly where you came from. You know you came from Kevin and Whitney, but with that disconnect with the families, it's very, you know, nobody would tell her anything. Mm-hmm. And it was just little things that she wanted to know. And she was, and, and we had to make her understand that you, you can't change any of that. You can't make people tell you something that you want to know about. It's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So you just have to accept that and just know the only person in this world that you can change is you, and you have to move on. And what did that acting out look like? A lot of depression, um, a lot. She spent one whole summer in the house and stayed on the couch every single day. She slept there. She didn't want to get up. She didn't want to go ate out of the there. house. She ate there. She really did nothing. And anybody that would try and, you know, ask her a question, you know, let's get up, let's do something. I mean, she would just bite your head off. Kelly, what do you think helped pull you out of this? Honestly, my mom. What about you, Paula? You must have had quite an amount of rage toward the hospital. In the beginning, yeah. In the beginning, there was a lot of rage. Now it's it's not rage. It's just more of a, of a disappointment that you have such a large entity like that that is looked at all over the world as one of the best, you know, hospitals around for them to do something to that. And I understand that it was an accident. I truly, truly believe in my heart it was an accident. But to act the way that they did and to treat us, not just myself and Callie, but, you know, the Chittams and the Rogers, the way that they did and not take some type of responsibility in that. You know, we're taught all of our lives that when for every action there's a reaction. You know, and you have to take responsibility and own what you do regardless of whether or not it's good or bad or indifferent. And they've never done that. 
Not to this day have they ever, ever taken one ounce of responsibility for anything that they've done to any of our lives. And you're saying that exacerbates these feelings. Absolutely. Absolutely. We do want to point out that we offered the University of Virginia the opportunity to participate in this program. It declined, but UVA did send us a story done by the Associated Press one month after the baby switch was discovered. The AP reported the university took out full-page ads in several newspapers apologizing for the switch. The article quotes John Castine, president of UVA at the time, writing the switch has caused unspeakable sorrow to the families involved. But Paula, what's your understanding about cases in which this sort of thing happens? It's not very frequent. I know you've researched it. But what's your understanding about how often this happens? I don't think that it's very frequent, I think it probably happens more so than we know, probably not now since light of our case, but before, because if it's just a common little mistake of picking up a child and just sticking it in the wrong bassinet, how many times it happened before, before DNA actually came out or before they started requiring blood tests for parents who were arguing over child support and custody at that point? I think it it happens probably, well, we hear it every, every, what, Probably once or twice a year, maybe we hear, not necessarily around here, but you hear it in different countries and so forth and so on. But I guess when ours happened, there was only actually three reported cases. It was ourselves and then the Mays case down in Florida, and then there was a South African, I mean, um, yeah, from South Africa, from Johannesburg. There was uh, two little boys that were switched there that we actually met one time. I'm looking at the two of you now. And I see a mother and a daughter. <laughs> everybody that? says that. I would think so. Yeah, everybody really. says that. It's a match. <laughs> I declare you mother and daughter. <laughs> She's a product of her environment. <laughs> she gets a lot of my mannerisms. She gets a lot of my mouth, a lot of my attitude sometimes. I think it's that's not hereditary. I think it's, uh, it's just a product of her environment. With your children, and you have six, do you have a philosophy for raising kids? No, they're all extremely different, every single one of them. They all have their different quirks. They all have, you know, things that make them click and things that don't. So, no, I mean, you just have to love them. That's the only thing that you can do. You love them unconditionally, regardless of how good they are, bad they are, you know, smart or otherwise. It doesn't really matter. They're your children, and you just do what you have to do, you know, and you just raise them to be productive members of society and, you know, go on with your life. And when you, I talked about your mom doing research around switched at birth cases, uh, when you looked into the lives of, of Kevin and Whitney, your biological parents, did you discover that very rich love story that existed between them? Yes. I'd love it if you would share the story. My mother was 14 years old. My father was 18. They both lived in Buena Vista. My mom was a cheerleader and my dad was a quarterback. And they just met and fell in love. The two families were not happy about it because the age difference, and she ended up pregnant. And because they were young. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll add on that reports say that your father was eager to be a dad. Yeah. At his young age, he was ready. He went to the store to go get clothes, baby clothes, get everything set, and was just proud as a papa could be. And then a year later, they found out, a year after I was born, they found out that they were pregnant again. And that was Lindsay, Rebecca's sister. And so they ended up having this family for which Kevin began building a home Yes, uh, using his carpentry skills. My father, Kevin, and his father, my grandfather, Larry, they started building it together. 
Rosa, my grandmother, she still owns it. She still pays for everything in it. It hasn't changed any. <laughs> it's been sitting there all this time. Everything's still it's in boxes. It's never been changed. It's never been changed, but how is it used? It's not. Not. So it's sitting there as a museum? Basically. Oh, that's There's touching. still... Everything's still in boxes. Oh. Everything's brand new. There's well, still no railings on the stairs, nothing. Given the sudden way in which they were taken from us, I understand. Does it help to know that they were so much in love? Yeah, but then it also makes me think about... Everybody always says all these happy-go things about them. Well, I mean, if they were 14 and 18, there has to be something. There has to be some differences. And I think what she's trying to get at is that she wants to know the good and the bad. You know, we're not all perfect. It's just not that way. And she wants to know when her mom was in a mood, what did she do? She wants to know, you know, if her dad was in a bad mood, did he throw things, you know? It's just little things like that that she really wants to know about. I just want somebody to tell me your mom gets upset. Your dad throws tantrums. Just tell me that. Mm -hmm. And that's that whole wanting to know, you know what I mean? Wanting to know all the aspects of of your life and where you came from. And since she wasn't involved in that three-year period of her life, she wants to know everything that they did. They weren't perfect. We all know that. You know, I mean, it was a great love story. But on the other hand, she wants to know the truth. She wants to know the good and the bad about her mom and dad. You know, her mom did terrible in school. We're just, you know, we found this out a little bit later. She struggles in school. Kevin excelled in school, from my understanding. Callie's had to go to her mother's brother and ask him, tell me, I want to know the bad things. I want to know, did she ever cuss? You know what I mean? Was she? Did she do all that stuff? And she's found out a little information, but um, it's not as forthcoming as she would like. I want to thank you both for joining us today. It has been a pleasure, Callie, to meet you and your mom. I am joined by, and I'm going to I'm going to read the full name here because you went through the trouble of changing it. Paula Johnson and her daughter, Callie Marie Jewel Chittam Johnson Gentry. It's great to have both of you on Virginia Conversations. Thanks. Thank you. Virginia Conversations on Virginia Public Radio is underwritten by the Virginia Education Association, the men and women working in Virginia's public schools. VEA, teaching, learning, leading. Online at veanea.org. And by listeners of this Virginia Public Radio member station. Listeners can hear this program again or access other Virginia Public Radio news content at virginiapublicradio.org. This is...